you would, you can turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to be in the first nine verses of Haggai chapter 2 today. It is on Pew Bible, page 743. 743. Um, A quick recap of the context of Haggai. Because remember last sermon, Haggai 1, we talked a lot about timelines and how timelines are important and how they help us understand information more holistically. And that's especially true for these little minor prophet books towards the end of the Old Testament. So a quick recap. After the establishment of the monarchy in Israel, we had Saul, then David, then Solomon. Those were the three, first three kings. And then after the kingdom divided between Judah and the south, in the south and Israel to the north, They both staggered on for some century, Israel to the north, generally in disobedience, Judah to the south, slightly behind them in their disobedience. Israel didn't really ever have any good kings in the north. Judah had a handful of good kings that came to an end. The whole thing came to an end with the Babylonian captivity, where Jerusalem was finally captured in 586 B.C. and relevant for today. The first temple was destroyed. They were taken off into exile for 70 years, just as the prophet Jeremiah had said they would be. The Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians while they were in exile. Then the Persians, they had a different philosophy when it came to conquered peoples. They let, uh, they let people go back home. They found they could let them live in their homelands, collect a little tribute from them, make sure that they had a ruler that was over them that was ethnically of their stripe. And everybody could get along nicely. Um, They were happy because they were getting tribute. The people were at least happy enough not to rebel. The Persian emperor Cyrus decrees in 539 B.C. that exiles could return and start rebuilding their temple and stop. They stop once they have a foundation and an altar. So they go back, they start building this foundation to the temple, which would be second temple, and then they get an altar, and then they stop. So 19 years later, after that, so in 520 B.C., the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, and he prophesied to the people that the Lord wanted the temple completely rebuilt. So they were convicted, and they started construction immediately. They started building, and another oracle comes about a month and a half after the first oracle. So there are four oracles In the book of Haggai, this is the second. We're getting to the second today. So the second of four oracles. If you would, look to me, look with me to the word Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It's titled, The Coming Glory of the Temple. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Remember, this is not, he would have been in the lineage of David, but he was not king of Israel. He was a governor. This is the puppet, ethnic puppet guy that is over Israel, but very much underneath the thumb of the Persians still. And it even says governor. It doesn't call him king. Zerubbabel, governor. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, who would have been after the line of Aaron. And to all the remnant of the people, and say, verse 3, who is left among you? who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, 
son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is where it, this is a little bit different, because remember our first oracle was just to those two fellas. But it's not just to them now. It's to both of them and to also all the people. So to Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua. And then he says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Work. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning, and may his saints be built up. The second oracle concerns, answers a concern by some of the older Israelites who remembered just how glorious Solomon's first temple had been. So once they started rebuilding this temple in earnest, actually for real this time, some of the old timers started to lament, saying, well, now that we're building the temple, it's good, but it's not nearly as good as the temple was underneath Solomon. And this oracle gives answer to that grumbling. So just to be clear, Solomon built the first temple. You'll hear the phrase, if you study the scriptures very long, and maybe look at commentaries, you'll hear first temple Judaism. Okay? First temple Judaism was during the time when the first temple was standing. So from the time that Solomon built the temple to when it was destroyed in 586 B.C., that would be considered first temple Judaism. Prior to that time, there had been the tabernacle, which was built in the wilderness and would potentially travel with God's people as they moved around. And then you had sort of semi-permanent tabernacles set up in different places. Shiloh was one of those places. It was a tent that didn't move. So you had various centers of worship that functioned this way. And then finally, the, the temple, remember David wanted to build a temple, but God told him, your hands have spilled too much blood. I'm going to leave that for your son to do. And Solomon built that temple, and then it was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Now they are building the second temple, the second temple, described in Ezra, Nehemiah, here, and Zechariah. This is where you might hear the phrase in commentaries, Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple. It's all about the timelines, so you understand the context. Five centuries after this, Herod the Great completely refurbished second, the Second Temple, but in such a way as to keep it Second Temple. This is where it can kind of get confusing. There was a dramatic change in the way the temple looked when Herod refurbished it. This is the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. So not such a nice guy, not such a good guy. Under him, the temple was refurbished in a way that the sacrifices could continue on, even as construction was underway, and it was an absolutely enormous task. The temple complex in Jerusalem, after Herod was done with it, was between 30 and 36 acres in size. It was absolutely gargantuan. Most of that was the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer part, and that's where the animals were. 
This is the part, if you read in the passage in the New Testament, when Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and makes a whip and gets upset, that's the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. If Herod, now this is where it gets a little interesting, Herod was ethnically an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau, which meant his people were rival peoples with Israel. If he would have come in and just bulldozed the temple and started over, the chances are pretty good that all the Jews would have rejected it outright because of who he was. So he kind of, in a, in a sleight of hand, re- made the temple the way he liked it and the way he wanted it to be, but he maintained the sacrifices that were going on and thus maintaining sepul- second temple Judaism, and he goes out of his way to keep it that way. There are 10,000 skilled laborers that begin work on it in 19 BC, and a thousand of them were Levites that they specially trained to be masons and builders so that they could, they could make sacrifices on, during their shift on one hand and also be construction workers simultaneously at the same time to keep Second Temple Judaism going. This is the temple that Jesus would have come to during his ministry. It's the temple that he came to when he was a boy. The upper center of the temple proper was where the Holy of Holies and the actual temple would be. Then on one corner of it was a Roman fortress. The Romans consistently placed soldiers there from time to time, just in case, which was probably a smart thing to do because the Jews got pretty rowdy a few times. On the other side was Solomon's colonnade, and that's where you read the early Christians met. Okay, It's also where you read when the boy Jesus is in the temple teaching the teachers. He's in Solomon's colonnade. Now, This construction went on from 19 B.C. until 63 A.D., just seven years before the Romans completely destroyed it again in 70 A.D. Okay, So it took a really long time, an entire generation of refurbishing Second Temple Israel, and then it was destroyed seven years later by the Romans. So one more time, just to make sure we got the timeline right. First Temple... There, were, there, were, there was a mobile tabernacle, then there were semi-permanent tabernacles, then there was first temple under Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians, second temple began construction here in Haggai, around 520 B.C., then Herod renovates 500 years later, does not finish until 63 A.D., and then the whole thing is destroyed in 70 A.D. Now, when Jesus came to this temple... He cleansed it, and he plainly identified himself as the new temple, the final temple, the ultimate temple. And this proclamation by Jesus is what the prophet Haggai is talking about. This temple that you old-timers are thinking back to Solomon's temple, you're saying, man, this pitiful little thing that we're building now, this is nothing This is just nothing. And Haggai is saying to those people, the Lord himself is the true temple. God incarnate, God with us. The final temple is going to come to this temple. This is going to see the ultimate temple. 
This is how the author of Hebrews describes the whole thing when he quotes the second chapter of Haggai, which Ron read for us this morning. This entire passage is worth reading and quoting again in context, and then I'm going to tie it in to what we're talking about. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. So you can insert the phrase when God, before verse 18, when God's people come to worship him. Okay, so think, when God's people come to worship him, and of course they're talking about the first instance at Mount Sinai. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose word made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape, when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the author of Hebrews is telling us what Haggai is talking about. It's always, it's always great when we have an Old Testament passage that a New Testament apostle told us what it means. I love that as a preacher. I love it. I had a, I had a New Testament professor uh, one time that had a rivalry with the Old Testament professor, and the Old Testament professor would like to rib him, and when he talked about him, he said, yeah, this is Dr. Plummer, and he teaches commentary on the Old Testament, because he was a New Testament professor. You get a commentary on the Old Testament. Okay, so it was funny to a bunch of theological nerds, right? Because it is. When we find a passage like this that's being interpreted for us, we have to pay special attention. God has been from the very beginning about the business, is what the, the author of Hebrews is saying, about the business of bringing about an ultimate and final kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a temple that cannot be shaken at the center of the city, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. How do we know it cannot be shaken? Because... The holiness of God, according to these passages, shakes. It shakes things. It shook the people at Mount Sinai. It shook Moses. It shook their golden calf that they had made. It shook their idolatry. God shakes this world with his holiness, and, he, and everything in it trembles. We saw it in the life of Job. 
We saw it in this passage as people gathered at Mount Sinai. We saw it when the Babylonians crushed the temple and carried off the people into exile. We saw it when Christ was crucified. When Peter was sifted like wheat. We saw it when the Romans crushed the temple just seven years after it was done being refurbished. We see it and saw it when Christians are persecuted and individual churches are scattered. We see God's shaking all throughout human history. All these things on earth are very, very, very shakable. The kingdom that we're receiving, the third temple that we are receiving, that Haggai is referring to here, cannot be shaken because after God is done shaking, it will still remain. And if it will still remain after God is done shaking it, definitionally, that's unshakable. It cannot be shaken. First and second temples, obviously shakable. The prophet Haggai is pointing that out to these people even as they build the thing. You old-timers are groaning about how Solomon's temple was better, and I'm telling you that that temple was just as feeble and shakable as this one is. But this temple, second temple, will see the temple that cannot be shaken. If walls could talk, Boy, I, if, if I could talk to a wall, I would love to talk to the wall of Sef, uh, a wall in Second Temple Judaism. In, in some ways, it's, you remember the prophet Anna, prophetess Anna, and, and when they were, they, they almost like symbolized the joy of the anticipating of the waiting of Second Temple Judaism. This temple cannot be shaken because the cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ and the walls are built from the promises of God. The sins of men can be shaken, but the salvation of man in Christ cannot be shaken. It is finished. God's purpose of salvation cannot be interrupted. It cannot be diverted. It cannot be undone. God is building a final and ultimate temple right at the center of his final and ultimate kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For though, excuse me, for through him we have both access to one spirit to the Father, so that so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. See this temple imagery? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. 
When Christ hung on the cross, he let out in his final breath the words, It is finished. What was finished, in some sense, was... Now, there was a lot of things that were being finished. Okay, so don't just take this one and run with it. But what was being finished was Second Temple Judaism. It's finished. At that moment, what happened to the curtain dividing the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God on earth, with the rest of the world? What does is, what is the gospel tell us? That that curtain did what? Split in two. Divided in half. Although that temple stayed standing until 70 A.D., from that point forward, that building was a lame duck temple. Because as Jesus drew his last perfect breath, the cornerstone for the new temple was slammed into the bedrock of eternity, and it was completely and utterly unshakable by anything. Because it was completely and totally put there by the purposes and intentions of God himself. So why do we have to go through so much trouble? Why is there so much trouble in this world? Answer, because God is shaking his creation. He said it. He said it in Haggai. He said it in Hebrews. He is helping us to understand what is going on. Why is there so much trouble? Because God is shaking. And our temptation in the midst of our own personal troubles or our church troubles or our societal troubles is to think God is shaking us because he wants to annihilate us. He wants to shake off everything that's shakable. He wants to annihilate something, but it's not you. He wants to annihilate sin. He wants to annihilate everything that is not permanent, unshakable, by the definition we're given biblically. He wants the dross taken out. He wants to blow the chaff away. He wants to take the wheat into the barn. Just like the people of God came to the mountain at the beginning of what we would understand as temple, God with us type of worship, so you too this morning have come to Mount Zion in worship. You have felt the shaking under your feet, and you have sought refuge with the unshakable. You are sinking up to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You are in the company this morning of innumerable angels. This is the church of the firstborn amongst the dead. This is the church of Jesus. You have felt the shakiness of your sin and rebellion and come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the sprinkling of his blood that Hebrews said speaks a better speaks better and clearer than the blood of Abel, innocent blood. But unlike the blood of Abel, this blood does not cry out from the ground because it was put into a grave and the grave could not contain this blood. Rather, this blood flows straight from the throne of the living God Almighty and washes clean all those who would call him Lord, washing whiter than the driven snow. For the very blood that cleanses you 
and draws you also makes it possible for you to draw near to the Mount Zion, the mountain of God, with confidence. With confidence you can come to what cannot be shaken. And if your salvation is in anything else, if it's in anyone else, it can be shaken. If you are trusting in earthly things, if you're trusting in your bank account, or you're trusting in your wit, or you're trusting in your education, or trusting maybe in your physical health, if you're trusting in any of these things, what can happen to them? What will happen to them? They will be what? Say it with me. Shaken. Shaken. The reason you are permanently settled in God's family, the church, the temple, that cannot be shaken, is not because you believed certain thoughts in your head down here on earth. It's because you've come into the heavenly places and you, laid, you have laid hold of that which cannot be shaken. And this must be the fundamental bedrock of your life as a Christian. This is what Jesus meant when he told the story of the wise man who built his house upon the rock. <clears throat> now, it's very easy to have historical blinders on and take things for granted in prosperity. We're accustomed to things being a certain way. We've got everything in order, right? I'm going to do this. And this is going to happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to graduate from college because they said go to college. And I'm going to make a good living. And then I'm going to save a million dollars. And I'm going to retire and go pick up golf balls off a golf course in Florida or something. That all these things are just predetermined, right? As if they're somehow owed to me. But verse 7 of Haggai 2 says that God shakes some nations, just those nations that are not your nation, right? All. God shakes all nations. We feel a little shaken. We go, oh, it's the Democrats. It's those do-nothing Republicans. Congress, it's the president, it's Supreme Court. If we just get the right man in the chair, and what that kind of talk is revealing is where our trust actually is. Augustine, Augustine, wrote the city of God to deal with this type of thinking. Barbarians had invaded and sacked Rome. And the Christians had so identified Rome with the kingdom of God that Augustine had to write a book entitled The City of God, to explain these very things that I'm talking about from Haggai to Christians, that there is an unshakable kingdom and that there are shakable kingdoms, and God shakes us because it's good for our souls to be shaken up. It's good for our souls to have things that cannot be last, cannot last, be shown as things that cannot last. It's good for you to recognize when something is temporary and call it temporary. It's better for you to recognize when something is eternal and value it as something that is eternal. That's what the shaking does. 
Brothers and sisters, if you didn't know it, you're living in exile. I know it hasn't felt like it for a long while, but you, you have been living in exile, and you will continue to live in exile. Some of you might be tempted to look back on the golden age of American evangelicalism in the 20th century like the older Jews did in Haggai chapter 2 when they looked back at Solomon's temple. Thinking that that was the ideal. I don't know what the Jewish equivalent of Bill Gaither would have been, but that's what I'm thinking about. Thinking that that was the best it could get. That was, the, that was it. That was, that was somehow the manifestation of Jesus' kingdom on earth. Mid-20th century evangelical Christianity. That was it. And I would respond to that, even the temptation to think that way, the same way that Haggai responded to the people of Israel in Haggai chapter 2. Well, I guess it was obviously shakable. I, I guess what we would have thought of as the ideal of American evangelicalism, obviously shakable, guys. The truth is that since we are heavenly citizens and we aren't in heaven and the kingdom of heaven has not come down, on earth as it is in heaven, Christians have always been in exile. We've always been the people of the unshakable God living in the land of earthquakes. And so what are we to do in the midst of this shaking? Right? If I'm painting this, painting this bleak picture for us. God's just going to shake, 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 shake until, until only the eternal permanent things remain. So what good are is all the temporal stuff? What good is our everyday lives? But if you look to Haggai chapter 2, verse 4, he gives the commandment to the people of what they are to do, even though they're working in a temporal sense. He says, Haggai chapter 2, excuse me, Haggai 2, verse 4, work. Very last sentence, work, for I am with you, declares the host, Lord of hosts. Does all the introduction, and then he says, hey, y'all, work. Get to it. Build. What does that mean? Well, specifically in Haggai, he wanted them to build the shakable temple. He wanted them to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild their way of life, even though it was shakable, because in doing so, in building this shakable temple, they were instrumental in the building up of that which could not be shaken, namely the people of God, namely his kingdom on earth. So in their, in their achieving and doing and building of a temporal structure, they were helping to bring about things of eternal value, namely people that would have faith and their souls would be saved by God. And so, another scripture I want to bring your attention to, that's a, that's, this was a shaky time for the people of God in, in Haggai. They felt the shake, for sure. What did he tell them to do? He told them to work. Okay, rind it back just a little bit. Jeremiah 29, they're still in exile. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Consider what he tells the Jews when they're being shaken. They've got, they've got all these false prophets coming to them and giving them false hope. 
promising them things that aren't true. And so the Lord of hosts through Jeremiah cuts it all out and speaks clearly to them. And the Lord of hosts says to them, To all the exiles who I have sent into exile, to the people that I am shaking from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Above all other people, Christians should not be caught off guard by the shaking of the world by God. When everyone else is full of panic and hopelessness, we of all people should understand what is happening, why it's happening, and what the final conclusion of it all is going to be. So we work. Work. Provide for yourselves. What are we to do in the midst of the shaking? You ready? Real practical. Provide for yourselves and those around you. Realize that this may look different as the Lord shakes things. Might mean you need to work some more overtime. Maybe if grocery stores run dry, it might mean you need to take up gardening. Provide for yourselves and for those around you and for the people of God. Provide. Marry a woman who loves Christ. Then have kids with her. Lots of them. And if you can't biologically have kids with her, find people who don't want their kids and adopt their kids, lots of them. And then raise them all up in fear and admonition of the Lord. Train them up as Christians, every single one of them. Repent of your sin in front of them. Teach them God's law every single day, all day long. Seek the welfare of the perishable city, the perishable nation that you live in. This isn't some anti-American cry that I'm giving to you today. No way. Seek the welfare of it. Being citizens of the imperishable city should make us the best citizens of the perishable city. Building up the people of God is, is building the temple that cannot be shaken. When you build up God's people... You are building the temple. That is the work you are assigned to. Do not be deceived. Before we go on. That's, that's a mouthful of truth. When you are building up God's people, you are building third temple Israel. Do you understand that? And I'm not just talking, not just in some like hyper spiritual way. When you provide for each other, when you, when you babysit, when you offer a card of encouragement, and man, we got to, listen, listen, practical application point. If, you, if you're given to like offering cards of encouragement, I've got about 12 people that need a card sent to them just to encourage, just to build them up. Offer them a scripture, prayer, whatever. Come see me, I'll, I'll, I'll get that to you. Visit when babies are born. Cry when somebody's dad dies. 
Build up the temple. Work. Work. The Christian message is not... This nation will be shaken like every other nation that has existed before it. The Christian message is not cling to your gun, obey the Constitution, and call upon the name of George Washington. It's cling to the word. It's cling to the sword. Obey the law of God and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Concepts like liberty and personal property and the right to bear arms and the rule of law are downstream from love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those things only flow from gospel-converted hearts. There is a great temptation for Christians. I know this because I am often subject to this temptation to be given to the spirit of fear and turmoil of our age. We feel a little shaking under our, uh, under our feet, and we forget that we belong to Third Temple Israel. We belong to the unshakable structure of God, rooted, planted firmly on the eternal, blood-bought cornerstone, Jesus Christ our Lord. And if this is you, if you have the tendency to forget these things, and you feel the shaking and somehow think that you're shakable, I want you to try something for me this summer. Turn off Tucker Carlson and plant a garden. Stop turning the pages of Facebook in search of some shaking to panic over and turn more pages of Scripture in search of some unshakable promises to rest in. We aren't surprised by the shaking. The rest of the world is, and this is the most important application point here, the rest of the world is shaking horribly, and they are dramatically looking for something to steady them. I was listening to a podcast interviewing a man named Adam Curry, and he is nicknamed the Podfather, not Godfather, but with the P, Podfather, because he was the first person to have the idea of podcasting. He was doing something, and then Steve Jobs called him one day because he saw the potential and the technology that he was developing and the idea of what he was doing, and he wanted to institute it as an app on iPhones. And you have the podcast app on your iPhone because of, or whatever phone you have, because of Adam Curry. And then it was off to the races. He is a highly, very much secular man, but he leans conservative. He used to be a highly secular man that leaned liberal. He was talking about his thoughts and evidence that he's come across regarding the corruption and control within the power circles of global leaders. And the interviewer asked him his emotions upon discovering and thinking about these things. And what would normally have been a throwaway comment was the most illuminating and empowering comment for me. He said about discovering just about just how bad things look. This is what he said. I have come to believe that there is actual evil in this world. And I'm not just talking about evil people. This is his quote. I'm talking about a force that is acting outside of and upon people. Real evil. So I have found myself asking deeper questions, and I'm do doing something I never thought I would do. I started going to church. 
When God shakes this world, the sons that he is calling to glory will be looking for the unshakable. And guess who that is? It's you. It's you. The temple of God being built up is you. Open your mouth and tell them about Christ. Open your mouth and say, the reason I'm unshakable is not because I'm unshakable, it's because my Savior, Jesus, is unshakable. And let me tell you more about him. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, or sorrows like shaking sea billows roll, it is well. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through who? Us. Us. And if you are saved, called according to his purpose, the future of you is Christian. And here's the thing that gives us confidence, and we know without a doubt from his word. We are in touch with the unshakable. And the unshakable is building up a structure in such a way that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow. Until Jesus comes back and consummates the whole thing. The future of this world is Christian, and there isn't anything that anyone can do about it. It is finished. And the future of you is Christian, and there's nothing you can do about it. He has called you, He will sanctify you, shaking loose all that sin is containing within you, stripping away the idols of your heart, and then he will glorify you. And it's really quite astonishing to think about because you think if God shakes the world down, how many people could be left? Who could stand before this holy God, right? How could anything remain? If you go back to that Hebrews passage, you see what does the assembly look like? How many? Well, there's an innumerable company of angels. This general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are in heaven. If you come to this assembly in the book of Revelation, where John hears the number that symbolizes the church, we want to say that if God shakes the world, how many people could be saved? Who could stand before this almighty God? How many people are saved when God's done with his shaking apart of all of our idols and shaking apart of all of our lusts, and he's shaking apart all the stuff that can't last? We turn and we look with John. What do we see? The last verse of our key passage today says that the latter glory of the imperishable temple, which is us, will be greater than all the temples to precede it. All the silver and the gold of all the kingdoms will be there, and there will be peace. We're getting, we're, these are pieces of the puzzle of what we're looking forward to. So let's turn and let's look with John the Revelator and the prophet Haggai and who could stand before this almighty God? Who could withstand all this shaking? And Revelation chapter 9, verses 9, excuse me, 7, verses 9 through 10. 
John turned, and after this, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. How many can withstand the shaking? Well, really, just one man. But through that one man, the biblical answer to how many can withstand is the answer, you can't count that high. We don't have computers that can count that high. How many people will be saved? Abraham was taken out of his tent and shown the stars in the night sky, and told, "You so shall your descendants be. And my favorite thing about the study of the heavens, as they build these great telescopes and so forth, is they just keep finding more and more and more and more and more stars. Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, so shall your descendants be. When God has shaken this sinful world, how many people will be saved? We can't count that high. And if you have laid claim to Christ as your Savior, you're a part of it. You're the temple. And if not, why not? Why not even now? Where else will you go? What else will you grab hold of? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It requires no grandstanding, no trumped up emotions. It's very simply this. Pray to God. You have come to this holy hill and God is listening. You might just pray something like this. Say, I'm not as I should be. I believe your word when it tells me that I am full of sin and rebellion against you. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came and died for my sin. He resurrected from the grave and now sits on his throne in heaven. I believe you are shaking this world, that you can save me from the consequences of my sin. To the best of my ability, I will follow you and grow with your people, your unshakable temple, until your kingdom come and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Say those words with me. Ready? Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We can, we can say the Lord's Prayer to a point where we lose the weight of what we're asking for there. You're asking for the shaken. And He will. He is. He's going to. But we as Christians... Do not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And so, when peace like a river attends your way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When it's not attending your way. When you, when you go to the doctor, you get bad news. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Work, work, let's build the temple 
all the while praying with me. Ready? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.